Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Bryce Bongiovanni, and today I'm talking to Jason Ruiz. Jason is a professor of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame and the author of Americans in the Treasure House, Travel to Porfirian, Mexico, and the Cultural Politics of Empire, out from the University of Texas Press. Ruiz examines the relationship between cultural depictions of Porfirian, Mexico, promoted by travelers from the United States, and the history of U.S. economic and military interventionism in Mexico during the Porfiriato and the Mexican Revolution. Jason, I'm glad to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Um, to start out with, could you tell us a little, little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, your academic career, and what drew you to this field in general? Sure. I'm from East Chicago, Indiana, right over the border with the big city, uh, um, over the Indiana-Illinois border. So, um, But I went to University of Minnesota for undergrad and liked it so much that I stayed and received a Ph.D. in American Studies from the University of Minnesota in 2008. Like everyone, I was looking for a dissertation topic my first few years, and I actually came into graduate school thinking I would do something on contemporary tourism. That was kind of a passion of mine, a deep interest of mine from the first time, actually, that I went to Mexico as a 15-year-old, took a week off of school, much uh, to my teacher's chagrin, but, um, to get introduced to Mexico with my family. And um, ever since then, I've been passionately interested in travel to Mexico, but then also what it means and how ideas about Mexico circulate through travel. So I came into graduate school thinking I would do something contemporary, but if I could tell a quick story, I was helping a friend out at the Minnesota Historical Society, maybe my second or third year of graduate school, and she was hosting class there in the archives, and in between students, I started searching around and looking for you know Mexico and travel as keywords, and I found a really interesting description of travel to Mexico by a Baptist preacher who lived in Minneapolis that I write about extensively in few chapters of the book, especially in the later part of the book, because the book appeared in 1914 in the aftermath of the Porfiriato, in which he describes in his title, The Devil in Mexico, one of sort of a small body of work that looked at Mexico in very scathing terms, especially revolutionary Mexico, and none was more scathing than G.L. Morrill, who went by Go Lightly and was kind of a globetrotter figure in the early 20th century, and actually a, a stand-up citizen in Minneapolis. I, I found pictures of him, for example, helping to inaugurate the first civic Christmas tree in Minneapolis, but wrote a series of scathing travel logs and you know, became sort of an impresario of travel, like these globetrotter figures, you know, doing lantern slideshows in church basements to introduce parishioners or audiences to far-flung destinations, including, you know, he wrote books such as you know, with titles such as Sea Sodoms and others, Hawaiian heathens, and uh, and the devil in Mexico. And I argue a little bit that he reserved special venom for Mexico uh, as a place, partially because it was so close to the United States, making it even more dangerous at the time. So 
going from you know the devil in Mexico, I became more and more interested in kind of the the area era that directly preceded it in the Porfiriato. So from the 1870s to the 1910s, looking at the uh, the period in which moral, in particular, uh, for which moral was nostalgic, as I argue in, in the last chapter of the book. Right. About the Porfiriato, what exactly is the cultural context of Morrill and the other American travelers you talk about here? What what exactly is their relationship to Mexico at this time? Why are they going down there? What's going on? You know, set the stage for us. Yeah. Um, well, initially, a, a lot of Americans go to Mexico for a very simple reason. It's because Mexican and American rail lines are linked in the 1880s in El Paso, and it, travel to Mexico becomes newly accessible to even everyday Americans. So starting in the 1880s, you get a flood of travelogues, postcards, picture books, many different kinds of representations of Mexico that's only possible through those rail lines. So as some of your listeners might know, prior to the rail lines, travel to Mexico was still really, really difficult up until the 1880s. So the few few travelogues that you see from the 1860s and 1870s mention that you know, this, this arduous task of taking a steamer, usually stopping in Puerto Rico or, or especially in Havana, you know, waiting in Havana for days and days for the next steamer to uh, Veracruz and then taking this really um, treacherous rail line from Veracruz to Mexico City. And, um, but that all changes in the 1880s when, you know, you could board a luxurious Pullman car in a place like Chicago or New York or Philadelphia and arrive a couple of weeks later in relative comfort in Mexico City, which to many Americans looked like um, uh, a, an aggressively foreign place to them. So I, I kind of argue in the early parts of the book that Mexico becomes really desirable as a travel destination for a variety of reasons, including that kind of exoticism that I think starts in the 1880s especially. You know, and also the cultural and economic conditions of the Porfiriato. So you start to see, for example, um, many descriptions and an intense focus on Mexico as modernizing. So sort of a you know get in before it's too late mentality that I think is creeping hmm. into a lot of travel logs from this period where people are saying Mexico looks like old Europe. It looks like the land of the Aztecs, as so many people call it, but it's changing because the Porfirian regime is drawing Mexico ever closer to its quote-unquote sister republic. And, you know, they, of course, mean a big sister republic of the United States. And at the same time, there are many people from the United States that you talk about who are going to Mexico to participate in this project of modernization economically and socially. Absolutely. You know, Mexico or the United States is so heavily invested in Mexico at this time that many workers, many American workers find themselves kind of stationed in Mexico, sometimes very short term, but sometimes very long term. And a lot of the cultural materials that I work with in the book, including scrapbooks and and personal memoirs and letters, those all come or many of them come from Americans who are living and working long term in Mexico, especially in the later part of the Porfiriato in the 1920s and the 1930s, into the 1920s and 30s, people working in the petroleum industry and similar sort of heavy industry. Earlier, it's, it's the mining, mining industries and other sort of extractive industries. Right. So you have a, a I guess you would call it a, a combination of, of two, two kinds of, of forces going on. One is this tourism to see the exotic and the foreign, 
and the other is this drive towards modernization, progress uh, in the economic sphere, and they are they are converging in Mexico at this time and place. That's a really good way to put it. Um, I try to distinguish a little bit between travel and tourism because I don't think that there's an, enough infrastructure and enough kind of cultural force behind calling the travelers that I work with tourists yet. Okay. I, I, so I think of them more as travelers. That, that's a, a subtle distinction. Um, but um, I, I don't think that they're going to participate in a tourist industry as much as they're going to kind of see themselves and the people who go for pleasure, at least, are going uh, to see themselves as kind of intru- intrepid tr- global trotters and travelers more than, than tourists, which I think arrives a little bit later in Mexico. Although you do point out that the experience of these travelers in many ways sets the ground for contemporary American tourism to Mexico in the later part of the 20th century. Absolutely. You know, I've read hundreds of travelogues at this point, maybe a thousand, but um, from all different manners of life, you know, from the from the very early parts of the Puerto Rico to the, to the 1930s and to the 1950s. And what I find really interesting is a lot of them are organized in similar ways to the travel guidebooks today, at least in terms of what you're supposed to see first, second, and third. Um, the content is, of course, really, really different. But I think that this what I'm working with in this book is kind of a prehistory of tourism in Mexico in the sense that, you know, before you have a tourist infrastructure and really a tourism industry, what you have is um, what you have is travelers who, who lay the groundwork. And, and they themselves also distinguish between travel and tourism because they complain about Mexico constantly. And a lot of their gripes are the fact that Mexico does not have an infrastructure that caters to American travelers like Europe does. <laughs> so they want um, they want they want the comforts that Europe provides in this period that they're not getting, including food and accommodations. And, and a lot of them go really sort of you know, angry <laughs> in their uh, travel descriptions of what's awaiting them in Mexico, largely because there's not a, the, tourism is not yet on the ground there. And they don't see, I think, what they're doing as tourism yet. I guess to move into talking about your, uh, your particular research, the very first chapter of the book, you talk about these travelers and really how they're learning about Mexico and how they're sending back what they see in Mexico, how they understand Mexico to people still in the United States, primarily through the medium of photography. So could you just tell us a little bit about photography among Americans in Mexico at this period, the major figures and uh, the general outline of, of what you're talking about there? For sure. I will say that, you know, looking at the history of photography in Mexico from the 1870s at the start of the Portfiliato to the 1910s, where the book really ends, is also an education in photography and the technology and the art of making a photograph dramatically changes. So, you know, I'll use when I'm about in what I'm about to say, I'll use some language, but you know, please uh, keep in mind that it does not necessarily refer to the entire portfolio and and the kind of photographic practices. There isn't like one way for an American to take a picture in Mexico throughout this period because it does radically change, especially late in the portfolio and right during the Mexican Revolution with the uh, advent of handheld cameras and, uh, you know, Kodaks that make it photography completely mobile. Right. You note note the change, I should say, between... uh professional photographers who are working to supply sort of an industry of, of picture postcards and portrait photography 
to photography being done by travelers and workers in Mexico themselves on their own time. Exactly. But interestingly, I think one kind of feeds into the other. I think that a lot of what happens when people start getting cameras of their own and they start getting very highly mobile cameras, what they do is they follow the photographic practices set in place by the earlier photographers, the professionals who would arduously travel around the Mexican countryside or through the city with these gigantic cameras, sometimes, you know, hauled by mules uh, to get to, to penetrate kind of previously unphotographed, or at least in their imaginations, you know, previously unseen uh, pictures of Mexico. But interestingly, you know, some of the things that I cover in the first chapter are still popular photographic tropes, such as, you know, indigenous children, which is the cover of the book very purposefully, because I argue that um, if I could get kind of more specific about a particular photographer, C.B. Waite, you know, focuses extensively on on and lingers upon the image of the impoverished child as kind of a national exemplar of Mexico in a way that, you know, any tourist still sees today when they're, if they stop and think about what either they're taking pictures of or what their fellow travelers and tourists are taking pictures of, you know, we still see this in place. But C.B. Waite was, is I think, the driving force of my first chapter and the first um, photographer I got interested in who worked in Mexico during that time period, uh, arrives in Mexico in the 1880s, is a extremely prolific photographer, you know, produces tens of thousands of images that are everywhere in the archives. You know, I can't find an archive with any representation of travel to Mexico that does not include work by C.B. Waite, but is really ignored by especially American scholars. A few people have written about him and, and, um, a, a Mexican scholar wrote a master's thesis and published a couple of small books on C.B. Waite, kind of using the images. But, but Waite, I think, really helps to shape how Mexico is pictured in the American imagination, but is also either misunderstood or underrepresented in, in how we think about photographic practices in Mexico, partly because his work is very, for lack of a better word, denotative. It is not yet He's not yet working as an art photographer like someone like Hugo Brem, who's working at the same time actually would be and several, you know, Mexican photographers and, and foreign nationals who, who live in Mexico, including, you know, uh, Carlo, Frida Kahlo's father, you know, are, are really striving toward art in their photographer and in, in their photography. But C.B. Waite, uh, interestingly, is more interested in the art of the postcard and the art of profit and, and drawing on images of Mexico. Um, throughout the period and um, and shaped and I think sort of accidentally shaping Mexico be, our vision of Mexico because he doesn't um, he he's more interested in picturing Mexico as he saw it more than producing an art around it you know specifically um, his his focus on children and you connect that to the infantilization and you also know sexualization of the subject of photography that characterizes a lot of photography of the kind of colonial and imperial age, which you also note is something that has persisted in depictions of Mexico and Mexican people into modern photography as well. Yeah. Uh, one thing, one interesting thing that happens with weight is that he 
although he has a very long career in Mexico, he lives and works in Mexico for several decades and does not leave until he's really driven out by the revolution. His brother's killed in the revolution. Uh, both Waite and his brother, both C.B. Waite and his brother, become um, large landholders in Mexico. The brother's killed. Waite eventually flees, I think, in 1913. But, you know, even though he had... A, several commissions from the Mexican government to do things like, you know, photograph the tremendous progress of things like the sewer system around Mexico City, things like the, the paving of Mexican streets, and especially in Mexico City, also the tremendous progress made by railroads. He's, he has government commissions, but he's also arrested in a, a kind of weird episode, and, you know, he's put in jail for three days, you know, released, and um, I, I think what sounds like um, sort of, you know, his friends coming, his Mexican friends coming to his rescue. But he um, he also, despite the fact that he is a very kind of socially sanctioned photographer, also produces what Mexicans considered uh, dangerous images. And despite the fact that he does have many images of scantily clad women, things like that, all that kind of imperialist trope that you're referring to that we've seen in many other colonial contexts, uh, you know, the Middle East and Africa, Asia, you know, everywhere that sort of, you know, that colonization or imperialism is photographed, you know, it, it tends to come with kind of the, the image of it. it it comes along with a certain set of images, including the image of the sexualized woman in need of rescue from imperialist power. But I think in the in the archival evidence, the charge against Waite is that he is he shows Mexico as degenerate, and I think that a big part of that is showing Mexico in poverty. It, his his vision of Mexican poverty is more dangerous is the most dangerous aspect of his work. So I think that's something that, you know, we still contend with as travelers to Mexico, you know, even if you're a casual tourist, you know, the sort of difference between Mexican poverty and the poverty, at least as visible on the streets in the United States, is striking. And it's a very appealing and seductive subject for anyone with a camera. To the idea of, of Mexico as, as backward. Uh, but at the same time, he's also, as you know, participating in the Perfiriato as a landholder uh, he has some degree of social sanction, so he's kind of straddling two different lines of relationships to Mexico, one of documenting their supposed backwardness, and the other of participating in the regime that Americans tend to think is going to bring Mexico out of its backwardness. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, his work is, is subtle in the sense that, you know, it's doing both of these this work at the same time. It's both documenting that poverty and the idea that Mexico is backwards, that Mexico is trapped in the past, is ahistorical in, in general. You know, he's doing both at the same time, which I think is also kind of you know, still how we look at Mexico. You know, it's like the third world, but not the third world, as um, as backward but improvable is still a big part of how Mexico is represented, not only through the touristic encounters, but also in so many film and television productions that that deal with Mexico, deal with kind of the same contradiction or ambiguity or even ambivalence that I think color weights images. To move on, I guess, to talk a bit about how depictions of Mexico translate into American attitudes towards Mexico, and especially, especially towards the Porfiriato, you talk 
first about American relationships, specifically to Diaz himself as a figure, Porfirio Diaz, as this kind of criticized, but in many ways also idealized dictator who plays a couple of different roles. And I was wondering, could, could you talk a bit about, about that and particularly about how you see the role of American travelers in shaping these American attitudes towards Diaz during the Porfiriato? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I don't claim that I have anything new to say about the Diaz regime itself. You know, I kind of leave that to the Mexicanists, um, the, especially the historians among the Mexicanists. And I think that, um, you know, the regime itself is, fa- is a fascinating object of study. And what I do in the book is look at something re- a little different by looking at American perceptions of Diaz as a way to get at the imperialist impulse that shaped and especially the economic imperialism that shaped American visions of Mexico during that period. So kind of the thrust of the section of the book that you're asking about would suggest that Americans found in Diaz a really ideal figurehead of Mexico. So I write in the book about how, for example, they they conflate Diaz with Mexico. And this was done all the time in, in with world leaders. You know, we could see this today, like Putin is Russia and Russia is Putin you know, in the news right now as, as we're speaking. But they also, you know, they have a lot to contend with in terms of championing Diaz, and one of them is around race. So what they do, and it, it kind of, um, that part of the book kind of um, is echoed in, in a later chapter, is they position him, for example, as an idealized mestizo. And they argue that at times his body reflects the perfect Mexican state. So Travel writers, for example, travelogue writers and photographers picture Diaz and then they write about him as, for example, having the the hot temper, so the hot head of the Indian, but the cool heart of the American. Or I, I just conflated them, but the hot heart of the Indian, but the um, the cool head of the European. You know, they also kind of, I think, misrepresent his lineage a little bit by claiming that his father was a Spaniard and and which is contested and, and claiming other things about his personal lineage, but they do frequently look at his corporeal self as a way to think about what Mexico is and what Mexico could be. They also do this through his, uh, his relationship with his wife, who's several, his second wife, who's, who's many decades his junior, distinctly more European looking, and as especially many women writers argue who are looking at, at um, Carmen Diaz, is that he is, uh, she's a civilizing force in Diaz's life. So even though he still possesses this fiery Indian heart, he has the cool head of a Europeanized woman who spoke perfect French, spoke perfect English, um, was a, had been to Europe, unlike Diaz, uh, prior to his exile, that uh, he has this kind of civilizing agent in his wife. So uh, when I started looking at Diaz, I got really surprised at how personal a connection many travelers had to claim to him. And you know, I subsequently learned through the historical work that you know, the Diaz you know, government did grant access to the president to many travelers, you know, with like the right letters and the right connections. You know, they, they could they could have an audience with him at Chapultepec. And this encounter became a trope in a lot of the travel writing associated with Mexico and especially associated with Diaz because this kind of um, this audience that they that they detailed also claimed um, it said something about the social stature of Americans arriving in Mexico that 
you know, you know, what other foreign land can you meet? You know, so regal a president living in a castle overlooking this this rapidly modernizing, you know, but right. ancient capital. Um, this this encounter with Diaz became extremely romantic, but also uh, totally tied up into what Americans were hoping for Mexico, uh, uh, namely that it would be civilized and modernized. And they saw Diaz increasingly throughout the course of the Portfolio as both civilized and modernized. And like, to what extent would you say this relationships between individual Americans and Diaz or between the body of American travelers more generally and Diaz as a figure is linked to, as you put it, American economic imperialism at this time? Are they actually going in and trying to use connections for economic gain as well as sort of the social cachet they're gaining? Personal economic gain? More uh, personal, but more in the larger sense of kind of the, again, this project of economic modernization in which they have both a sort of positivist humanitarian uh, ideal, but also the goal of increasing wealth. Absolutely. I think the central thesis of the book is that travelers who produced representations of Mexico did the cultural work of what Gilbert G. Gonzalez calls the cultural or the economic conquest of Mexico. So, and you know, many historians have noted that, you know, U.S. and other foreign companies and governments are economically taking over Mexico at this point, which is also a major source of tension within Mexico that leads directly to the revolution starting in 1910, around 1910. So, you know, Mexicans and and foreigners are aware that um, that investment in Mexico comes with a certain danger, and that danger is what we now think of and what we now call economic imperialism, the fact that the U.S. had more than $1 billion invested by the time that Diaz left, you know, has everything to do with why the revolution occurred at all. But these travelers, I think, whether or not they saw themselves as doing so, they took part in a larger cultural process of representing Mexico as conquerable, at, but specifically as economically conquerable. So, you know, every traveler might not have seen him or herself as part of, you know, a colonizing force or an, or an economically imperialist force. Right. But they still took part in a bigger project that also took pages in the or, or took place in the pages of National Geographic, of uh, the New York Times, of many mainstream American publications and and cultural fora that really were were thinking and were considering the Diaz regime all throughout this period and wondering what role the United States could play in plotting Mexico's future. That's a big question already that appears in lots and lots of places. And I think travelers emerge as these, these cultural figures uniquely positioned to, to report back to kind of the metropole, if you will, and say, uh, this is what Mexico looks like. This is what you find here. And th- this is the result of economic empire. Right. And the one area that you spend the most time on in the book is something that combines the economic and the cultural or social elements of this kind of American reporting back and trying to think of ways to modernize Mexico. That is, the way these American travelers are viewing 
Indians and the Indian problem in Mexico. I wonder if you could just explain for a second what that is. What is their particular concern about Mexican Mexico's indigenous population? Well, travelers saw Indians everywhere they went, just like a traveler does today in Mexico. And of course, you know, I mean, indigenous people, I'm using right. the, the language that they would have used during the Porfiriato, and, you know, they undoubtedly would have called them Indians. And, and they, they focus on Indians and they obsess over Indians that they see everywhere throughout the Porfiriato. And I think what it presents is a problem for many of the travelers when, if they are considering Mexico's future, as I just mentioned, they have to contend with what do you do in a country where, in their view, unlike the United States, where Indians have been subdued, even though they, as they arrive in Mexico, the Indian Wars are still going on in the United States. Um, what do you do with a country um, with a population as potentially unruly and uncivilizable at, uh, due to its large, extremely large indigenous population. So what I, what I argue is that they develop frameworks and conventions and tropes that help each other and themselves to contend with this so-called Indian problem and to pose solutions to the Indian problem. So I work with many images that I found everywhere in my research that show, for example, Indians at work. So they would, uh, National Geographic did this in particular, and Wait took many of these images, but, excuse me, so did many of the travelers who went to Mexico, uh, focused on the fact that, un supposedly unlike American Indians north of the U.S.-Mexico border, Mexican Indians, um, although they had all these problems, they were endemically lazy, just like uh, Americans would have seen Native Americans. They were prone to drink. They were racially backward and um, potentially, you know, in their most genocidal form, um, potentially a disappearing race, as they were in the United States, which we'll probably get to in a minute. Uh, Indians, unlike no those north of the border, could be incorporated into capitalist production. So you see countless images of Indian women sorting coffee beans, Indian men drying those beans or working a field, you know, frequently with um, sort of what Americans at the time saw as rudimentary implements but then also arguing, like, look how naturally hardworking the, the Mexican Indian is. And if we just put the right tools into his or her hand, they might emerge as something like a working population in this country. So this country is rich in natural resources, but it's underdeveloped because of, A, the sort of problems of Spanish colonialism, and then, B, the problems that are endemic to indigenous people. But with the right intervention, with economic intervention, and managerial intervention, uh, the Indian could be civilized into what, if not a fully modern worker, something that resembles the modern worker or something that could help to um, help to foment Mexican pro progress, nonetheless. Just to, but you still so, have the same time. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. You still have at the same time, you have, you know, of course, countless images of, and by images, I mean also like sort of rhetorical and um, descriptions of Indians as, you know, underdeveloped, backward, in need of kind of cultural and even physical intervention. Because again, in the Mexican context, we see context, we see the image of the Indian body as endemically diseased, as physically and corporeally inferior to the European body. Um, but uh, as I argue in the chapter that goes along with a chapter focused on indigenous people, you know, Mexico, unlike the United States, which supposedly has strict um, 
rules prohibiting uh, miscegenation, of course, supposedly, because, you know, miscegenation about U.S. history. Um, Mexico does also already have a racial framework for removing the Indian, namely through mestizaje. Um, So I consider also the cultural politics of mestizaje throughout the Porfiriato as told by American travelers. Right. One thing I did want to point out um, is that you mentioned, of course, that uh, Morrill, for example, who you talk about, especially later on in the book, but who appears repeatedly, is a minister. He's a Protestant minister. Yeah. Um, the One of the particular things that uh, American travelers suggested as a way to help modernize Mexico's Indians was the introduction of Protestantism, because this is a period of a fair bit of anti-Catholicism in the United States, and the sense that Protestantism goes along with the superior work ethic of the Anglo-Saxon Americans. Yeah, that's absolutely part of it. So, um, you know, as I, I include some pictures in the book, for example, that I think function as before and after pictures. So you have, um, and these mostly grew out of the Protestant missions themselves, which were very adept at producing visual and textual representations of their work in Mexico. So they saw themselves as a civilizing agent, as did Morrill, who laments the, the kind of removal of Protestant missionaries in Mexico during the Porfiriat, or during the revolution. Um, you, you get these before and after pictures where, be, you know, before it's an, it's an image of a, a, of a so-called wild Indian, you know, carrying a, a gigantic pile of sticks. But then after, you get things like a... Uh, a heterosexual family with children dressed in, in proper Western attire. They're sort of de-Mexicanized, but more specifically de-Indianized through Protestant intervention. The other arm of this, of course, is presenting Indian Catholicism and really all Mexican Catholicism as somehow barbarous. Um, right. you know, of course, the problem with that is the elites that they, that the travelers meet and glorify and become, you know, completely, they romanticize, they become completely enamored with are also Catholic. So they have, they, they, I think there's kind of two veins of Catholicism running through travelers, just representations of it. The sort of barbarous Indian Catholicism that, uh, they really blame the sort of you know, Spanish curse on and they, uh, they look at, um, it as a remnant of Spanish colonialism. And you get you know, countless descriptions of travelers remarking upon things like Mex- or Indian forms of penance. And there's a, you know, a fabulous but a haunting image of, a, of an Indian woman paying penance that was reproduced very frequently. I think it's a weight image that appears in the book. Um, and they, they become convinced that like Protestant conversion is rescue. But they, of course, never, ever think of trying this on the elite Mexicans because they know that they need an elite class to kind of facilitate uh, their, the cultural and economic work that they're typically proponents of. Right. So I think uh, they see elite Catholicism as romantic, you know, a, a, a beautiful Mex, what they would call Spanish señorita, you know, under a, a thick black veil is somehow romantic. But an Indian woman, you know, crawling the church on her knees is barbaric. This is kind of a, presents an interesting image of, of how they're also relating to the Spanish history of Mexico as something which is both this black legend of superstition and backwardsness and barbarism. That's the word I was looking for, black yeah. legend. Yeah, thank you. But also, this is the critical European factor that makes mestizaje something that 
becomes desirable to these travelers. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's, again, an, another kind of problem, an intellectual or conceptual problem that travelers have, you know, because they see mestizaje as uh, the end of the Indian. They see it as, you know, as the Porfirian regime also would have argued for blanquimiento, as whitening. Right. At the, they, don't, they don't see it as the browning of a European population. So there's a real problem there because they don't they don't see that mestizaje goes both ways. You know, of course, in the 1920s, Vasconcelo sort of argues that mestizaje would be you know the end of all race and you know because it would create the cosmic race and of uh, uh, something completely new. But they pin their hopes for the kind of taming of Mexico on mestizaje, and they produce some very ugly representations of um, Mexico. Indian and indigenous sexual practices and, and romantic practices as a way to argue, you know, like, um, you know, there's, there's horribly vicious quotes where, you know, everyday travelers, so not, not race theorists, not scientists, not social scientists in any way, um, they claim to observe that the well-to-do Indian or the, or an, an Indian in possession of any intelligence marries up the racial food chain. So they marry and they reproduce with people who are lighter than themselves. And, you know, as I argue in the book, you know, the end game of that is, you know, eventually genocidal in a way. Right. And it's, it's worth noting, just as an aside, this is going on in a number of countries in Latin America around this period. And it is, it's tied up in the idea of, of progress because you get a similar narrative going on in Cuba and I believe also in Brazil um, in places. There it has more to do with the the emancipation of slaves. Mexico, I think for American travelers, I think you note this, uh, one reason that they can support, come to support mestizaje in Mexico is the relatively small number of African Mexicans. Um, they essentially don't exist to American travelers, or if they do, they're so minor and so marginal that they're not worthy of concern. Yes, and that's a good point. Um, especially in sort of relating it to things like Brazil, where, you know, a, a large black population, an emancipated slave population is a, is a conceptual problem in that context. They, travelers universally in the period that I look at the Porfiato and its aftermath, deny the existence or the possibility of, um, of black Mexicans. Um, they do, however, claim that um, black Americans, so African Americans, sometimes arrive in Mexico and sometimes stay. You know, think people like Pullman porters, etc., or you know, whatever. They claim that African Americans might arrive in Mexico, and in, in one passage that I cite, they they say that they're sometimes seduced by these lusty Indian women in Mexico, but. You know, and, and many times those Indian women succeed at nabbing a black American into thinking that they, and tricking a black American into thinking that they're desirable. But inevitably, you know, that, that man who gets with an Indian woman comes to his senses and then abandons her, you know, like he should. Um, so there is, you know, a glimmer of black and indigenous sort of interaction, um, at, within the conceptual frame of American travelers, but they do it as a way to kind of punish and um, disregard indigenous women in particular. Um, and also, I mean, since you, since you man, uh, mentioned the, the black curse um, or black legend, I would say, you know, 
a lot of this also accelerates around the time of the Spanish-American War for Americans who who use it as a, as an occasion to um, claim that Mexican backwardness is not even as much related to the, the endemic backwardness of Indian people as it is about the sort of problem of Spanish colonialism. And they see um, other forms of colonialism, including their own or imperialism, uh, subtle distinction there, they see their own sort of you know, growing empire as a civilizing agent rather than something that would move indigenous people backward in time as, as Spanish colonialism ha- had. You see again and again around the Spanish-American War, they say that Indian people in Mexico are worse off and more backward and, and further back in time than they were during the, um, before the Spanish arrived in Mexico. Right. In a sense, it's, it's a hemispheric, uh, an extension of U.S., ideas of imperialism and progress especially keeps coming back to that term being extended in this sort of hemispheric hegemony so the u.s is claiming a role in mexico and it's also claiming a role in cuba role in puerto rico after the spanish-american war as a civilizing force and kind of cutting off in a sense the the spanish history at that time Absolutely. And and arguing to each other, and even in travelogues, arguing uh, to their audiences that, you know, the U.S. is not going to, or Mexico is not going to become a new imperial possession of the United States, but that the, the existence of these new possessions, you know, including Hawaii, the Philippines, and, right. and places in the Caribbean, the presence of these only underscore America's responsibility in Mexico. So, in your last chapter... You talk about what happens when this kind of image falls apart because the Mexican Revolution occurs. Um, And you talk specifically about the unique body of Americans in Veracruz, which is occupied by uh, U.S. Marines during the Mexican Revolution. And you talk extensively about the kind of languages, language used, the attitudes of the Americans there, how they're reflecting on the revolution, and their nostalgia for the Porfirian regime. Yeah. My question, yeah. sorry, my question about that would be to begin with, what, what is, what is, how do they experience the start of the revolution? What is the, is this a moment of, I guess, cognitive dissonance for these Americans realizing, in fact, the project that we have thrown our support behind has now collapsed? Well, they're horrified by the revolution, of course, you know, and, you know, many one thing that surprised me a lot was that travel to Mexico did not stop during the revolution uh, from the Americans. So you, most people who know anything about kind of American-Mexican relations during the, the revolution know that you know, Americans would stand on the American side of the border and watch kind of the pageantry of the revolution at time and watch battles. And, you know, there's always this sort of idea that, you know, Americans were hit by stray bullets, you know. And there's images of, you know, ladies holding parasols as they watch parts of the Mexican Revolution. But what I wanted to stress in the chapter is that Americans went deep into Mexico during the revolution. And this, the idea that a lot of the modes of representation that they perfected during the Porfiriato, so the travelogue, the picture postcard, all of these kind of modes of representation did not cease during the revolution, but merely sort of changed to accommodate what the revolution meant 
for American frustrations with Mexico during the period and American occupations of Mexico during this period. So there is a rich visual culture of the revolution that flourishes in the United States, including on postcards, you know, horrific postcards of, you know, charred, you know, insurrectionist bodies, you know, that circulate in U.S. popular culture during the time. The frontispiece, the morals book that I mentioned, The Devil in Mexico, is, is in fact the image of a lynched insurrectionist. So, you know, the frontispiece is a dead Mexican. Um, and so the, the, the practices of travel don't change, but the politics of travel change dramatically. And as you mentioned, I argue that what a lot of travelers focus on is kind of what was lost to us, you know, us being sort of the Americans, supposedly. Um, so the idea that many Americans view the revolution as if it undoes all of their civilizing power in Mexico, and they look at the uglier parts of the revolution as a way to think about um, either, A, the need for uh, intervention, which you know, many American writers, including you know, Jack London, talk about, you know, sort of the sort of you know, social chaos of the revolution as a rationale for American intervention. Or they argue that you know um, that we lost we lost something special in Mexico and and we can't get it back was kind of the other argument. But I zoom in on Veracruz for a, a number of reasons, partially because you know the U.S. occupied Veracruz a couple of times in the 1910s, but also many travelers um, or some Americans who had been living and working throughout the Porfiriato were evacuated through Veracruz. So you get a lot of sort of encounters between Americans and, and the Mexican Revolution through Veracruz. You know, sometimes those tra- those those Americans who had been living in Mexico are stranded in Veracruz or, or Tampico, and uh, that becomes kind of an international crisis. But then also just Veracruz Vera becomes a, a flashpoint, especially around, you know, again, to my surprise, before as I was researching this, around issues of sexuality. So I kind of open the chapter by thinking about the idea that the Americans who do go, including moral, look at Veracruz and they see uh, sexual degeneracy as the ultimate symptom of the social breakdown wrought by the revolution. Right. You really talk about this in, in the role uh, at one point of, of the relationship between U.S. sailors and soldiers in Veracruz and Mexican women. Uh, and this is painted by Morrill, I think, and a couple of others as part of a larger system of, of like U.S. versus local relationships that is in a line stretching back to the Philippine War, the Cuban occupation, where American soldiers have been thrown in with local people and have sort of been negotiating a relationship with them, which includes a sexual relationship. Yeah, I just um, I just hosted a co-hosted a, a small conference here at Notre Dame, where I should have said I worked uh, in my intellectual autobiography. When you asked earlier, I oh, worked okay. here at the University of Notre Dame. Um, we hosted an, a conference on American Empire, and we wanted to include sort of a contemporary rep- representation. And we chose the newish John Sayles film Amigo, that also includes, you know, sort of, you know, as a very minor plot point, kind of the the sexual dimensions of U.S. Empire abroad. And of course, you know, anyone who studies um, anything about colonialism, especially in the years following kind of post or, or feminist post-colonial studies and, and feminist reconsider considerations of uh, post-colonial studies 
will know that, you know, colonialism, empire is always a sexual project. So I look at that from two different dimensions, you know, one of them being sort of the horrors of sexuality that, that appear in moral and related texts that look at Mexico, especially Veracruz in the context of, the, of my book, as um, sexually dangerous to Americans who are passing through. Right. Of course, Morrill, as I should have mentioned earlier, is titillating audiences as much as he's scandalizing them about Mexican degeneracy. So you know, his, his, book, his books also contain, you know, they needlessly contain images of um, topless women and, and representations of, you know, women across the globe as some especially non-white women as somehow sexually available to any traveler who who passes through so he's supposed to be the sort of present sexuality as horrifying in in that book and in other related texts but you know the other side of that is of course the rich visual culture that sailors produce everywhere they go it seems and uh that's also included in Mexico, and you, know, you get lots of images of sailors sort of fraternizing with Mexican women, sending postcards to their buddies back home, suggesting that you know Mexican women, despite what you have heard and read, are, are quite lovely and, and readily available. This is so. Another thing to, to mention would be that this is again something that is played out in the same terms in previous American imperial uh, expeditions, but also at the same time in places like Haiti. Think of some of my own. Uh, reading on the American occupation of Haiti by the Marines, which was going on about the same time, there was immense concern with sailors, soldiers going native, uh, consorting with local women, and becoming indolent and uh, losing track of their, you know, proper American role as kind of saviors and civilizers of the of the society. But at the same time, this was also something that was sold for large-scale entertainment value, which is that connection between disgust and titillation. Absolutely. I, I don't know if you're thinking about Mary Renda's book there, um, Taking Haiti, but that's certainly you know a, a part of that book. And I don't think that the case of Mexico is singular, but um, I do think it, what it does is it reinforces a, a large and very convincing body of work that suggests that we need to look at the sexual dimensions of the, the colonial or the imperialist project. So I liked what you said about you know the sort of danger posed to uh, Americans and and Europeans who might find themselves in these locations. This definitely appears in the context of Veracruz. You know, I cite this one sort of very moralistic uh, warning that says you know Mexico is not the place for a boy. You know, meaning a sailor or um, I think in this context. Um, you know, an investor or a worker who's prone to cards and drink because, you know, the culture is endemically prone to those vices. So you kind of don't know if it reads as either a warning or a suggestion to that boy who is right. prone to the vice that he might want to check out Mexico. You know, I guess it's one of the ways that images of sailors, you know, ha have captured the American imagination in particular as both moral enforcers and uh, amoral um party goers, if you will. Right. I would say that, that I think what is singular or distinct about your, your discussion of Veracruz here is that it's connected to, again, this sense of nostalgia, regret of these Americans over what has been lost because of the end of the Porfiriato. Uh, mm -hmm. There's an American sense you talk about of that Americans, that Mexicans rather, are ungrateful to Americans, mm -hmm. that they have not paid back 
all the effort Americans put into civilizing them and trying to develop their uh, country economically and culturally. Uh, and this is, you know, sort of this sense of sad resignation that a lot of these writers are voicing, along with, I should also point out, I thought dramatically candid statements to the effect that the U- U.S. was a colonial or imperial power and ought to be acting as such in Mexico uh-huh. at that place in time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I definitely think that that thread of, you know, the gratitude that um, is definitely par- shaped how they saw Mexico. And you know, I borrow that, of course, from um, an article by Luis Perez, you know, about the, um, about the Americans in and American attitudes toward Cuba after 1898, that uh, Cuba somehow owed the United States because the United States had, had rescued it. And But there's something else happening, you know, because the United States did not rescue Mexico on political grounds. It did not rescue it from its so-called imperialist, you know, controller of, you know, the Spanish Empire. But it does claim to have rescued the Mexican economy through this massive investment and felt like it was owed not only um, the rights that it had bought all throughout the Porfirian regime, but then also, you know, um, an attitude of fraternal or sororal gratitude from its sister republic um, down below. So, yeah, I think that that's a really interesting part of, of American frustrations and um, their sort of extremely negative depictions of Mexico during that period. The final thing I'd like to, to ask is, again, what do you think You've talked about the relationship between American travel all through this period and current American attitudes or tourism. You mentioned that toward the beginning, and it comes back up at the end, uh, where you mentioned, of course, that Veracruz becomes the epicenter of American tourism later on in the 20th century. So in a very broad sense, what do you see as the connection between this period of travel and modern or more recent American tourism in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, one thing that again surprised me as I was researching was how very different a travel that the uh, a trip to Mexico looked in the early parts of the 20th century to to today, or when I first went to Mexico in the early 90s. So, thinking about the idea that the beach vacation, for example, had not been invented. So. Uh, Americans never mentioned beaches and they never mentioned some of the forms of pleasure that we derive out of Mexico, especially beaches in, in today's context. You know, it's hard pressed to find someone who's been to Mexico who has not been to a beach. But I think w- one of the things that's really different is they see a trip to Mexico as a trip to uh, Europe in many ways. You know, they see it as visiting cathedrals and architecture and um they're constantly looking for the signs of Europe in Mexico. To, and this is often done and frequently done by the railroad companies themselves that actively market a trip to Mexico as a trip to Europe. Now, that changes in the 1930s when there's an Egyptological uh, craze in the United States and elsewhere, and they start to market a trip to Mexico as a trip to, um, as a trip to Egypt because of the ruins. Right. But I think that that's one of the, the ways in which, you know, travel is really different in these days. At the same time, I think that a lot of the modes of, of representation that we get in guidebooks and in our own travel and touristic practices 
has remained. You know, I'm constantly trying to get my students to, to ask themselves, like, look, you're, you're not an imperial force when you go to Mexico. You personally are not um, practicing empire. But is there, are there any ways in which you're inheriting an imperialistic way of seeing that country that, you know, emerges from the Porfiriato, collapses in the revolution, but then reemerges? as other scholars have argued in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, you know, are, are you reinforcing systems of power when you take a picture of, an, of a poor, impoverished Indian child and um, putting that up for display and, and, and viewing yourself in relation to that person? Or, it also has, sorry, sorry. Or more explicitly when you go to Acapulco or Cancun and are there in part uh, with the aim of sexual adventure, you know, the college uh, spring break type experience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of those destinations are about having sex with each other among right, the undergraduate students and not with the locals. But it's still, you know, it still positions Mexico as this, you know, capital O other space where the rules that that govern your proper behavior as an American college student or any American person, you know, American identified person, like does not no longer hold. And Mexico as a liminal space is, you know, the longstanding trope associated with, you know, representations of Mexico, either in our popular culture, but especially, you know, through our travel. So, you know, why do we see Mexico as this other and how can we rethink looking at Mexico as a place where um, the rules are off because it's, because they're somehow more backward than those of us on this side of the border, or somehow um, like less modern than us. Well, I think that's just about all the time we have uh, today. But before we go, uh, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you, what are you working on next? Yeah, for my next project, I'm thinking about the idea of what I'm calling American recreationism in Mexico. So not thinking about American recreation in Mexico, but thinking about the longstanding trope of Mexico as a place where Americans go to start their lives over. Hmm. So uh, looking at various kind of artistic communities, religious communities, utopian communities, uh, retirement communities, different groups of people that have seen Mexico as a fresh start. I'm, I'm calling the project tentatively Searching for Manana because I think that one of the ways that ideas about Mexico circulates kind of from the Porfiriato to the present is by thinking of Mexico as a place that's available to us, but more specifically available to start our lives over and thinking about, again, the cultural politics of that. Sounds really interesting. I look forward Thank to you. reading it. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks very much for being on the show. It's been great. Thanks, Bryce. A lot of fun.